and welcome to the show. I'm Martin Willis, your host. And I'm on the road, as you can see, behind me and down in Florida and uh, with my son having a nice little vacation. And the uh, guest, Micah Hanks, he's probably 10 times more tech savvy than me, but he hasn't been able to get on StreamYard where I have message every which way, messages every which way to him to uh, call in our phone line. And uh, hopefully he'll catch that message uh, through email. And we've been trying every which way. But but for now, I just thought I'd show you because uh, this has nothing to do with UFOs. But who doesn't like manatees? This was yesterday. And uh, this is a, a cow, a manatee cow down in Florida in the Warm Springs. They're just such gentle, beautiful beings. And uh, their skin feels like an elephant. Looks like elephant, too. But check this out right here if you're watching live here. Look at the little baby calf, or the calf, I should just say, coming up to mummy and then getting a little breath of fresh air. Now, isn't that sweet? Doesn't that make all your, your anxiety go away and everything? Uh, anyway, I uh, got to swim with them, and uh, so that was a lot of fun. And I'm gonna, we're gonna hope that Micah comes in, but uh, for now, I just, just a couple of announcements. Uh, we have a new blog as always, and uh, let me just pull that up. It's called A UFO Abduction in Serge Pontois. Uh, that was my attempt at French, uh, thanks to a friend who sent me some phonic. Uh, translation of that. Uh, so just a couple of things. I, I do want to thank everyone that listens to the show, everyone that helps out. Anyone can do that. All you have to do is go over to podcastufo.com and you'll see our Patreon page there to support the show. And again, our all our blogs are over there on that page. We do have an archive of uh, many, many of our 500 um, audio podcasts so that you can access a lot of them through that uh, website also. Just another announcement, uh, May 3rd, check your calendar because we're going to be at James Fox at his new home over in Vermont, and we're going to be filming a show live on site. That should be a lot of fun. May 3rd uh, should be a great show. And uh, Bill, I think I'm going to call you in, and we're just going to hope that uh, Micah will uh, call in the show. I'm don't you agree? He's like a super tech-savvy guy. He is. He's like super geeky. He's a brilliant <laughs> individual. He is a very yeah. smart person. I know. And uh, did you say something on a bunker? He's in a bunker? Yeah, that, a, that was a joke, right? No, yeah. no. That's what his show, uh, Live from the Bunker. Oh, I see. I see. So yeah, maybe so that's the problem. Yeah, I don't know if he's but literally in the bunker. but He does his own show. So we. this is a total mystery, uh, why he's not able. And he does... A lot of StreamYard shows, which I am using, so uh, I'm not really sure uh, what what is going on with that. But uh, hopefully, we'll you you got your eyes right there on the telephone, right? You should. Be I got the eyes on the telephone and on Skype since I sent him a message. Hopefully, he'll see that on his Skype. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, what I what are we going to talk about? We got some uh, time to film. How 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 about uh, UFOs? You know, I have I, someone wrote me recently and. You know, they kind of, a lot of people miss the first part of the show that I used to do with Alejandro. You know, we'd always cover the latest breaking news. And uh, me being on vacation, I haven't really been paying attention, to be honest with you. So I have no idea what's going on. And it's not your job to pay attention, but have you? Actually, my focus has been on getting ready for Pine Push in a few weeks. 
Oh, uh, Pine Bush. Yes, that's another thing. Well, let's talk about that. That's coming up June 3rd. Yeah, you'll yeah. be there. I'll be there. Yes, June uh, 3rd. And who's going to be there for speakers? We got Lee Spiegel again. Yep, he's the keynote. Uh, Bob Sparing, the international director of cases for MUFON. Oh, um, show is that Con- from New, New York, New York State? What's that? Where's he from? Where's I Bob? Think Bob from? I think Bob's coming from Pennsylvania. I see. Uh huh. Then Shola Costa, uh, who does all the data research. Oh yeah. Sightings, cases. Yeah. Uh, well done. I mean, in depth. When she does her books, she's going to be speaking as well. She's traveling from, I think, Ohio. She used to live in New York, but I believe she now moved to Ohio. Yeah. And we got Katie Grabowski at the state director for Colorado, MUFON. And, of course, our good friend, Mark D'Antonio. Oh, Mark's going to be there again. Again. Mark. Yeah, but he does a great job, Martin. He does a great job. I know he does. I, oh, I love Mark. He's he's awesome. Uh, he came up in a conversation today between my son and I. We were, we we did a, a astronomy trivia. My son took astronomy in, in college, and uh, his professor always German professor always started the classes with a Moody Blues song. I can't remember exactly how he said it, but um, he remembered that. And that, so my son's listened to a little bit of Moody Blues along the way because of that. But he aced the class. So we did astronomy. Uh, trivia between him and I, and uh, I didn't exactly win. I'll just put it that way. <laughs> well, I did. I've been looking at some equipment, and you know I do sky watches. Yes, I have the Sony A7S III, which is a great camera, Martin. Very expensive. Yes. Yeah, but not as expensive as what I'm about to tell you. Uh-oh. I've been looking. I know someone who's uh, a dealer for certain equipment that they have for ships for yachts. Oh, wow. And they have a device. It's a FLIR camera for the vessels. Isn't that? I thought those were used just on. Those are used. You can use one on like a personal one. I thought they were on military aircraft mostly. No, they they, they actually sell them for people with vessels, with private yachts. But the wow. prices range. You ready for this? Anywhere from, say, 4000 to 109000 Oh, why, why stop there? Exactly, anyway. right. Yeah. So what it is, it's got an encasement. Obviously, it's made for outdoors. Um, I would have to get a converter to convert the power, run a cable on the top of my house. It would be a fixed mount. They have, um, and I can control it with a joystick inside the house. But Whoa. the one option of the camera is it's fixed. There's another option where it can move pretty much any way you want it. You're going to have to have one so you can move it, right? I mean... I would, I would have, but... Yeah, you know. big dollars. So is, this, uh, is this hot merchandise or is it legal? No, it's legal. It's just, like I said, it's made for vessels. I know. I'm just teasing you, man. Just teasing But you. it would be a heck of a thing to have here in the Hudson Valley for observation of aerial phenomenon. Yeah, you had something. You fly over the house. I remember you were doing a Skywatch and something was pretty weird. What was the, uh, what did it do? Did it like turn like it was going on a certain straight line? You don't have to try to get it. Okay. But yeah. no, it, it, the, the camera was pointed straight up, but this yeah. was an older camera system. This is when I first started in 2013. I took a Samsung, what was SCB 2000? It's a surveillance camera, CCTV camera. 
And then I took the IR filter out of it to make it more like a night vision, a more uh, higher resolution for light at night. So it was a cloudy night, but there was uh, breaks in the clouds. And I captured something. Now, it's curving. it. I'm going to just do it like this. But remember, the camera's looking straight up, so it would be curving like in the sky above. But it came down, went up, stopped for a split second, had three points that were illuminated, two smaller in the back, one larger one in the front. So it kind of formed a triangle. And then it went, gone. Wow. Now, I've heard many different theories from people that I respect. But I just don't know what that was, Martin. And Yeah, like, all right, well, you just said who you respect. So I'm guessing you showed it to Mark D'Antonio. Uh, and what did, Mark, what did Mark have to say? Mark usually has an explanation for any bizarre-looking thing that's out there. His explanation was it, it could have been something that was coming into our atmosphere and deflected back. It skipped the atmosphere, in other words, and went back out. But, Martin, this thing curved. It did not go any linear direction. It curved. Wow. And it stopped for a second. And it had three points of light, and which I say that carefully because I believe it's propulsion if it's artificial, you know, in nature, not natural. So that's my guess. Now, I wow. can pull it up. People can reach their own conclusions, but they got to remember this was taken on – one of these old uh, CCTV cameras. Now I use a Sony, which is fantastic. Um, but even then, Martin, when something's so high in altitude, it's almost impossible to discern what exactly it is. Right. You know what I mean? It is. Yeah. It, it's very yeah. difficult. We need something up close and personal um, because that's the only way we're going to see the, the features it can be anything. It could be a military craft. It, it could be a drone. I don't know. All I know is I don't know what it is. And I just can't come up with some type of an answer to tell me otherwise. And would you believe it? I don't know what's been going on lately. I don't know if this has anything to do with anything that's going on. But um, I've been having some serious issues with connecting to websites. Have you or any kind of... Um, browser issues going on because it's been happening to me no uh are you talking about like right now or are you talking about in general yeah like right now i'm trying to go to my youtube page and it's giving me a hard time and i you know me i have a great system here but i think i managed to get through so let me see if i can pull this video up and i know right. for- in the meanwhile since we're uh, yeah yeah Hopefully in the Michael meanwhile i'm going to let's see uh let me share <laughs> let me share another Another, All right, I found mine. Another, yeah. Oops. I'm going to make sure Oops. it's mute. Uh-oh. We, someone is saying that they're going to call Micah. So uh, that would be nice yeah. if they can. Yeah. Please do. Yeah. Please All right. Do. I'm, I've got my screen ready to share. So I'm going to share it. You can give permission. Once All I, right. I'm waiting, waiting to hear that. All right. Waiting I've got to see it. that. I mean, ready to go. Yeah. now, folks, this is looped, zoomed in. Um, it's looped. All right. So I want you, and I can try to stop it. That. So it's that curving down. Blinking? Yeah. Yeah. Curving down, curving back up. Look for the curve here. See how that curve? Yeah. Right yeah. there. And then I'll try to freeze it. It's really hard. It's hard to get that. Now, did you it. see this with your did you see this with your naked eye or no. is it just yeah? 
So that's it. Yeah. I don't know what the heck that is, Martin. Well, Honestly. someone suggested it was swamp gas, but I, 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 <laughs> I don't, I don't, think, I don't think so. That, but, yeah. but yeah, that's what I captured in 2014 here in the Hudson Valley. And the Hudson Valley, for those of you that uh, listeners that don't know, there's so many things or have purportedly uh, been going on there for how long back? Decades. Decades. I was talking to Lou Elizondo and I told him, I showed him this clip. And he said, I said, it's been going on for a day. He goes, Bill, it's been going on for longer than that. Has he actually looked into that area? I don't know. I didn't ask him that question. But Martin, there's people that see stuff up here all the time. And that's what put Pine Bush on the map because of all the supposed sightings that people and experiences that they were having there. And I'm here. It's not just that. I mean, there's so many other things going on there, too, which is really, really strange. Yes. You know, so, I don't know if you remember, but when I was out there last year, I had uh, a friend that I had remembered had stayed in in that area during when all that those things were happening. Uh, when when there was, uh, I guess you would call it a flap, and uh, so I called, and she basically said that there was. Do you remember the story? There was like a being in the. Uh, in the woods and everybody was seeing this thing when she was, she wasn't expecting to see anything and it, whatever it was, uh, she thought she, she described it as it looked like it was a uh, gray, <laughs> you know? Uh, and all these people, the cameras and every, they, they were there to film like a possible sighting. And she just happened to look over and there was some type of being. Now it could have been someone in my opinion, this is just my opinion. It could have been, someone playing a game on them too. You know, that could have been something like that um, in some type of, uh, I don't know, alien costume. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Meanwhile, let's, uh, let's check out. I've got a lot of film of them like munching along the bottom. So and, you were snorkeling, uh, obviously. Snorkeling, yes. You, you can't dive around them. You have to snorkel. Yeah. So, but um, they, when they're eating, I'm telling you, it's all business. But when they're not eating, like these were, they'll come right up to you nose to nose. And they're a lot of fun, a lot of fun to play with. Now, I've spoken to a lieutenant here uh, for the town of police. And of course, the famous line off the record. Because I asked, I asked this does not sound like a manatee story to me, but no, I'm guessing. Yeah, okay, Uh, it's UFO. But uh, I asked him, "Have any of the police officers ever seen anything? You know, UFO unidentified?" And he said, "Bill, off the record, the retired officers. It's interesting how they always use the retired office, not current. Yes, always the retired. Um, They did see." stuff well he sees he actually told me one uh officer seen one going into the hudson river and out wow now this is a true story i was in sears getting my car an oil change right here where i live and there was a guy that was sitting there waiting for his vehicle and i had you know a paranormal looking shirt on and he goes, are you interested in that stuff? And then I went into the whole thing about, you know, KJRA and all that. And 
he goes, I have a story for you. I was like, really? And I can get him on your show, Martin, um, if you want, but he doesn't do video. He's a retired New York State Parks Department police officer. And this happened in the 80s. He was on duty. He was on the Taconic Parkway. And he pulled over to the side because he noticed a light above him. He said it was the size of a stadium, Martin. And he was in awe. He was outside the vehicle looking up at this thing. And then he heard the chatter on the radio. Come this thing. They were coming from the north. There was a police officers, uh, patrol cars racing down to Taconic from the north, coming toward him, chasing this thing. (laughs) Then it, it went, boom, gone. It was heading south and they continued to chase it just like out of the movie. It's like out of almost like a close encounters where they're chasing the thing. And he never reported. He never reported it because they're afraid of being ridiculed, put in for psyche vows. Yeah. This is what happens. Right. Um, or happened. I don't think it's going to, I don't think we're going to see it as much. I hope you know? not. Yeah. I mean, I think the stigma is kind of softening, you know, I, I mean, it obviously is, but how much, Will it, you know, I mean, because there's only a certain percentage of people out there that even pay attention to this topic when it comes up on the news or anything They're, you know, they're most people are just, you know, think it's nothing to think about. It's impossible. So it's nothing to worry about or think about. Well, when um, Travis Walton was here a couple of years ago, along with Tom Reed, Sister Pine Bush UFO Fair. Um, Mark was there. There was a few others. Fox News was here. Tucker Carlson sent the crew to cover it. If there's one person in mainstream media that does do a lot of coverage of this topic, I have to give credit to Tucker Carlson because he does. Yeah. I'm sure there's others, but I mean, he does put it up up on his show. He he had Lou Elizondo on uh, last week. Right. Yeah, or the week before, yes, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, or the week before, yeah. So, I mean, at least there's some mainstream media that's doing it, and that's important to get it out there. Whether you agree or disagree with the individual, oh, we got a phone call coming in. I'm going to mute. Could be yep. Micah. I, I'm going to guess that it probably is. And, well, so hang in there, everyone, and thank you for being patient. We're, we're just uh, killing some time here chatting about bill is smiling so that's a good sign it looks like uh it's a possibility uh-oh did i just see him shake his head no he's laughing so uh hang in there michael will be on in just a moment uh-oh it's not him it was not him <laughs> all right so so the individual thought that that number was for Micah, and they called me so but I thanked her. for Oh, trying. I see. I, I see. Because I did put the number up on the board and said, if anyone knows, um, if anyone knows Micah's number, call him. And I put that number and tell him to call this number. So that's that's where that is. I also have uh, someone else just text me and said that they will um, they will attempt to reach him. OK. Uh, OK. So and- anyway, um, getting back to since we're up. Uh, hey. There's an internet outage. 
Okay, I'm li- I'm hearing from him right now. Can you fill a little gap, Bill, and talk about whatever you want? Yeah, so I actually, um, what got me all interested in ufology was I had a sighting in 1995 in New York City, of all places. It was June 10th. Uh, they were showing, of all things, Pocahontas in Central Park. And I lived in the northern area in the Bronx, right on the border of Westchester County. And I was looking out my window because I loved thunderstorms. I loved weather. I wanted to become a weatherman growing up. And I seen something similar to what's behind me right there on the left side, on my left. But it was boomerang or triangular, made no noise, and it went right over. And it was heading toward the fireworks display that, that was happening at about 11 o'clock at night. I oh, guess Bill, Pokemon. just to let you know, pay attention to your phone, too. Because yeah, Mike, Micah should can, be calling yeah. it. I've got screens also that show me. All right, All right sure. It. Yeah. So I reported it to Peter Davenport, New Fork at the time. He got back to me a few days later, email, Bill, you're not alone. Many seen it from, here we go. We got a phone call coming in. I'm going to mute. Yep. Okay. So that was uh, Micah just had my Skype from. Now, Micah Hanks was on this show the first time. I'm thinking it was 2012. So we're, we're talking about 10 years ago, somewhere around there. He was on first. Now, Bill's smiling more this time. So I'm pretty sure that's Micah Hanks on the phone. So again, I want to thank you for your patience, everyone. And I think we're about, I'm trying to read lips, trying to see what Bill's saying. <laughs> Uh-oh, that wasn't hanging up. Okay, here he comes. Mike, are you there? Uh, we're muted or something, Bill. We don't hear anything. Yeah, because I had it on mute. Okay. All right, he's ready to go. So um, you have to keep me on the screen. I'm going to. Yeah, I know. Stop the That's camera, cool. change the name, and let's bring him on so I'm going to bring him on right now. Micah. How you doing, Micah? Greetings. How you doing, Micah? Hey, so I'm glad you finally made it. Can you hear yeah. me okay, Micah? Well, apparently there is an area-wide. Yeah, it seems that there's an area-wide uh, outage where I am right now. And so I've finally managed to connect to the 4G and call in. Uh, there's a bit of a delay, but that's better than nothing, right? Yes. Uh, you know, it's not. I don't. I don't hear it on my end. Which is good, but you are you're getting a delayed. I don't know if you'd like to try to call back in, and perhaps that. Uh, why don't you do that? Give a give a ring right back and see if if that'll change. Want to we'll do that? that. Stand by. Yeah. All right, sure. All right, yes. Yeah, so I just received uh, just before Micah came on. He did. Uh, he did text me on Skype, and again, he hasn't been. We haven't talked on Skype since like. I don't know, almost 10 years. But luckily, he had my name on there still and came in, and and he will come back in just a minute here. Uh, so we won't have any open lines. Uh, every yeah, unfortunately. Before. Well, I can. Yeah, I can on my side because I okay. I have a number for that as well. All righty. So I've got everything all set for Micah, and hopefully you can tell there's some kind of an issue going on. Yeah. Because there so, was a delay. I heard it. Yeah, Definitely. And yeah, he had some type of major outage of what did he write me here? Internet outage in his area. So he's connected with a uh, on his phone, but it, it's not it's not really working through the uh, traditional way. 
but he right. should be calling right back. So yeah, they when I'll just continue until he calls back. But so it was seen from New York up the Hudson River into Canada. That was in '95. And wow. then I was uh, vacationing in Mount Talk, Long Island. Actually, I love that place. That's where I go fishing, and I've been going there since I was a child. And um, I was on the beach, and as a joke, literally as a joke, I took a flashlight and said, I'm going to call the aliens, you know, being <laughs> young and foolish and saying things like that. But oddly enough, 10 seconds later, the entire uh, sky colors, red, blue, you name it, green, just started to flash. My mother was there. She runs to the hotel room in fear. And we're all standing there in awe because it was unbelievable what we were seeing on a clear night. No aurora this far down south. It was stunning. No heat, lightning, no way. Um, And then a gentleman came uh, after the event was over. It lasted about like 15 minutes. And he goes, I, I don't want to sound like I'm crazy, but have you been watching the sky? I said, yeah, we've seen it. He goes, Phew, because I thought I was going crazy. And I can't tell any of the town folk because they'd never believe me. But at least I know you all seen it. And Martin, it was incredible. It, here he comes. Let's get him right, right on. All right. All right, Michael, you're on with Martin. Okay, excellent. Thank you, Bill. How's that now, Micah? How's the uh, feedback? All right, I think we're a little better now. How am I coming through? Loud and clear, hopefully. <laughs> Loud and clear. Welcome to the show, Micah. Uh, thank you for uh, for persevering and coming through this way. Uh, better than, you know, the phone line is definitely better than nothing. And I was kind of joking at the beginning of the show. I said, I think that Micah is probably 10 times more technological than I am. And I don't know. He's not here. I don't know what's going on. But anyway, I'm glad, glad we uh, sorted that out and you made it. Thanks so much for, uh, like I said, for, uh, I'm glad you saved my number on Skype because hasn't it been a long, long, long time since you've been on the show? Well, it's certainly been a while, and I think maybe the first time you ever had me on the program, it probably was via phone. Now, these days, we're used to StreamYard and uh, you know all these wonderful technological advantages that we now have with video streaming and everything, but apparently tonight... And keep in mind, I am coming to you live from Curitiba in southern Brazil. That might be part of the problem. I'm a continent away, but normally the Internet is very good here. I use it every day. I'm doing interviews with people myself. I've got another interview tomorrow. Hadn't had this problem, but tonight they actually just informed us that there is a citywide outage. And so we've been scrambling to try and get back on the old way. So you know what? When the Internet fails us, the phone lines have been working for a century, and they work tonight. <laughs> oh, wow. So what, are you down in Brazil on vacation? Not exactly. Uh, in fact, uh, I'm I'm here pursuing some UAP research. Uh, you know, A.J. Javard is probably the best oh, yeah. known, uh, ufologist uh, here in Brazil, and he, of yep. course, is the publisher of Heaviest uh, UFO or the UFO Brazilian UFO magazine. Uh, but AJ just recently put on a conference, and uh, we attended that uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Tomorrow night, I'm joining him and a local politician because there have been some significant developments down here, Martin. In fact, uh, the Brazilian Senate is right now pushing to hold hearings on the UAP subject uh, in a formal capacity. And this is definitely something that sort of mirrors some of the developments we've been seeing in the United States over the last few years. Excellent. Well, you know that James Fox movie is coming out about that. I can never pronounce the name of the place, but do you know where, where I'm talking about? I, I believe it's I, I believe it's Brazil. Yes. Yeah, it is. Yes, it's Virginia. Virginia. There it is. Yes, that's it. Yes. Yeah. 
that's the, yeah. lo- the location. And of course, the incident yeah. is usually associated with the, uh, the the place of the name itself. But you know, again, even beyond the Virginia thing, and again, James has really become kind of uh, you know focused in recent months on that case, and that's something that goes all the way back to his days you know, doing television. They actually have been looking into that uh, that case back then as well. And he's really kind of maintained an interest in that. But I mean, Brazil has a very long history of involvement with UAP going back to the 1950s. The uh, Brazilian Air Force came out and officially said, there are objects of unknown provenance in our skies. I believe that was in 1954. Uh, in around 1977, the Brazi- uh, Brazilian Air Force uh, was actually engaged in a short-term investigation called Opera Sopratu, which essentially translates to mean Operation Plate or Operation Saucer. Uh, And this was to look at cases that involved not only sightings of anomalous aerial vehicles or what people described as being those, lights in the sky, things like this, sometimes discs, sometimes ovoid shapes, kind of like your tic-tac everybody hears about so much these days. But also there were injuries that were allegedly associated with some of these sightings of UAP Uh, There was a reporter for the National Enquirer back then named Bob Pratt, who actually came to Brazil many times, kind of like I'm doing now. And he spent a lot of time interviewing locals who described these, you know, very unsettling occurrences where they were, you know, sometimes struck by a beam of light that emanated from these objects. And it sometimes left a little scar or a lesion on the skin. So that was part of what the Brazilian Air Force also looked into back uh, back in the 1970s. And so, you know, many decades later, it's interesting to see that the Brazilian Senate is now saying, hey, we need to hold hearings. We've been, you know, keeping up with what's happening up there in the United States. This is very much still an issue, and it has been for some time. That's right. And, you know, in South America, the the Chilean government also is taking this topic, has been for a number of years, taking this topic totally seriously. And I love the, the way that the fact that they have their military involved, their police departments, their scientists, everyone's involved in, in taking a very serious look at the topic. Indeed, yes. Uh, there was, of course, a uh, some disputed this, this footage, and in my opinion, I would say that it was most likely an aircraft of some kind, too, uh, that meaning a conventional aircraft. But there was a widely circulated video a few years ago that purported to show UAP and the Chilean uh, military had been trying to identify what, what this object was. That's right. Uh, you know, I think that there are some good explanations for some of these videos like that one. And then there are some of these pieces of footage that we've seen in recent years that are, you know, maybe not entirely unexplainable, but they're a little more on the anomalous side to me. I think the question is, you know, very much still open. The verdict is out as to what exactly the objects in these pieces of footage, you know, may be and what their provenance ultimately will prove to be. But again, that really has kind of what has reinvigorated the UAP debate since uh, 2017, I think. Yes, definitely. And that particular case you're talking about, I'm very familiar with that um, because I was kind of involved in that one in particular when that first came out. And um, to Mick West credit, and a lot of people don't want to give him any credit for anything uh, because, you know, he's, he's, uh, calls himself a skeptic, but, you know, a lot of what he does is he's, uh, you know, tries to be the debunker of UFOs in general. And that one he got right. A lot of them he doesn't get right. But that one in particular, I remember sending the uh, information to Leslie uh, Kane and saying, you better pass this along to Jose Lai Lai, and tell him uh, this looks like uh, a very good answer for this, you know, this unidentified object uh, video footage. Um, and, you know, they came around and said, oh, my goodness, you know, their scientists couldn't crack it or whatever. Whoever was looking at it, the military, no one could 
understand exactly uh, what was going on, but he had it perfectly laid out to an aircraft that was exactly in, you know, in the, that area, which was about 50 miles away from where it was filmed that particular, exactly at that particular time and the heat signature of it turning, you know, away from the camera uh, did look very mysterious. And that's the thing with, you know, modern technology, these new uh, cameras and the new technology we have can oftentimes, um, you know, have a mistaken object because we're just not really used to what we're seeing with these different, you know, signatures. So, uh, but that one in particular, I do remember when that happened, that was sort of a black eye because it was something that was taken real seriously and was actually published as, uh, you know, a UAP uh, video. And uh, that, that particular one did not pan out, <laughs> but it's right. not, you know, I'll, I'll just add, though, but of course, a lot of these UFO or, you know, UFO videos and different kinds of, you know, incidents involving purported UAP from over the years, many of them probably have explanations, even if those explanations eluded us at the time the incident occurred or the video was made. And again, I think that you know, one thing that will help uh, ufology, I still, you know, interchangeably use UFO and UAP. I, I'm not particularly preferential toward either one. One I recognize is a historical term we've used for a long time that everybody knows. UAP, it's actually been in use for quite a while too. Yes. But uh, nowadays people tend to prefer that they seem to think that this kind of helps remove some of the old stigma attached to UFO, you know, whatever that may be the case. But I think that what we should do as ufologists or UAPologists uh, is learn to accept that when we can debunk a video and we can explain a case, that's actually a good thing because that yes. helps remove some of the information that, you know, helps us once we have that, that core, that fundamental anomalous data that at the end of the day cannot be identified. That's where we can narrow our focus to. We can, you know, turn it toward and we can try to understand and resolve those cases. Maybe one day we will, but for the time being, I do think that there's still that kind of residuum, that small percentage that remains anomalous. I do. And I think that's, you're right. That's, you know, that's what's important of the ones that can't be explained even in contemporary ways like you just mentioned a, l a lot of things you know what is it um project blue book maybe that 701 that they could not explain uh there is a percentage of that that there is you know uh answers for and probably can be figured out but not you know the the time so much time has gone by at this point um but yeah i was just having this conversation yesterday i i'd like when things are um when there is an explanation because that take that one and you know check it off and move on to, to the ones that aren't explainable. Certainly. You know, maybe yeah. part of the problem, though, is that, you know, and again, with respect to the skeptics, because they perform a very necessary function in this community, I think you would agree, Martin, based on what you just said. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for, you know, mixed analysis, but I don't always agree with all of his conclusions. And, you know, I think that yeah. that's the issue is that when there is more information forthcoming that refutes some of the data that we are looking at or dealing with, you know, we have to be willing even as skeptics to say, okay, I have to revise my approach and my hypothesis may be somewhat flawed. That doesn't mean that it's going to be, you know, completely out to wash, but I mean, I've got to try and take a different approach. And what we saw in recent days, you know, there was a document release received by John Greenwald of the Black Vault. Of course, very few in the audience out there are not going to know who, you know, John Greenwald is, the incredible work he's done for decades. But he received this pilot brief uh, that is describing testimony provided by the weapons systems officer at the time of what appears to be, quite obviously based on the data in this brief, 
via gimbal footage as it's known. This being the object that, at least in the footage, appears to be rotating. Now, there have been a lot of different questions about whether the object's really rotating, whether that's actually just a lens on the Atflir targeting pod uh, provided by the Raytheon company that the FA-18s are using with the Navy and that were in use at that time. Fairly new technology at the time that this video was made back in, I guess, in early 2015. But with this pilot brief, it provides some additional details that the video alone could not convey. Those include that the weapon systems officer and the pilot said that they were coming in. They initially thought that this object that they observed might be part of a training exercise, that this was actually something that was uh, being produced probably electronically as part of a training operation. But they determined pretty, pretty quickly that it wasn't. They were able to detect this object in the airspace. They were able to lock on, film it, and observe it as it was moving near the USS Theodore Roosevelt. So what's interesting about this additional information provided by the WSO is that now, rather than just being a video and everybody saying, well, we don't know what that is, and without any additional context, we'll never know. Well, we're now moving toward maybe getting some of that additional context. And so the question now must be raised, if the weapon systems officer and the pilot said, yeah, we watched this object come into the airspace, we tracked it, we were able to get a clear lock on it, we were able to quickly determine that this was not part of a training exercise with the CompuX that was going on there at the time, off the East Coast, they were near Jacksonville when this occurred. If we can rule out some of those questions, or, or rather we can add, I guess, these details to the information we now have about this footage, again, Mick West has put forward the hypothesis that this is probably the flare from two distant jets. Yes. And that's why you don't really need much more than just this kind of amorphous shape. He said that's the result of the flare of these jets. But, you know, if this is the information that the pilot and the WSO are giving us, can we be so sure necessarily that that is the best explanation any longer for this footage? I'm not so sure it is. So again, to me, this is one of these instances, Martin, where I would say the, the verdict is very much still out. Right. And now there's uh, Chris Alito. I don't know if you're familiar with who Chris is, but he's done a lot of work on that. Basically, he calls it, you know, jokingly debunking the debunkers. Um, but he comes up because he's very familiar with the systems um, he's an F-16 uh, pilot, retired, a young guy. Um, and by the way, he's going to be on back on the show here on April 26, Tuesday, April 26. So Chris basically has gone through that um, almost frame by frame and explained that there is no explanation for what is seen, you know, by, by all the readings and everything that he can have access to. He really thinks that, that there really is something to that particular uh that particular video. So, but I, I do, I have heard uh, all, all types of variants on that. Um, and, you know, I, I do agree the jury's still out on that particular one. Um, as far as uh, the other ones go, I also heard that the, what's called the go fast is, uh, is like a drone lock. And that's a very, it would be a very high speed, uh, a very fast drone. If that's the case, I don't know if you've heard anything uh, along those lines. You know, there are, again, a lot of different opinions that have been expressed, one of them being that, and I think it, it's Mick West who has argued that really what we're seeing is an object that's barely moving. It's not close to the surface of the water like it appears to be in the video. This is all a illusion. I think he may refer to this as parallax effect, but I'm not 100% certain about that. I, I know that he refers to this as an optical illusion that is produced uh, by the footage and it gives the impression of a very fast-moving object. But now, you know, a natural question that comes to mind 
in that regard is the pilots in the video, even though the video may not convey all the information that we need to be able to discern exactly what the object is, we do have some clues from what the pilots can be overheard describing. And they are saying things like, did you, did you box that? Did you get that? Wow, look at it go. You know, and they're saying things that seem to be indicative of from their perspective aboard their aircraft, this thing appears to be moving quickly to them. Now, again, that doesn't mean that they aren't going to be susceptible to an optical illusion, just like you or I might be when we're watching that footage. But the fact that they were in the aircraft at that time, spotted the object, were attempting to track it, and then were able to get a lock on so that they could film it. And now we see the famous footage of what appears to be a very quickly moving object. You know, that seems to be evidential to me of the fact that the pilots at the time the footage was made were aware of something that they perceived as moving pretty quickly, too. And, you know, again, that is a little less that that would make me less inclined to think that this was necessarily just a you know, slow moving or an almost still object that due to the fact that the F-18 is flying very quickly, it gives the impression of a fast moving object. You know, they seem to think it was fast moving also. And furthermore, they were having to try and lock onto this, you know, with their tracking pod, which is, of course, designed to be able to lock onto a moving object and follow it. Uh, you know, so. That, to me, seems to indicate not only was this object moving, but it was moving pretty quickly like the pilots described. Now, again, maybe there isn't enough information to be able to really tell exactly what this footage shows. But what we could hope for is that additional information, such as the likes of this pilot brief that just recently was released by a FOIA request to John Greenwald, you know, these may help us piece together some of these elements uh, on down the road. Now, there is, of course, that third piece of video that wasn't filmed in 2015 with the folks there aboard the Roosevelt. Here we had the famous Nimitz incident, uh, pilot Chad Underwood, who I believe now is actually Commander Chad, uh, Chad Underwood. But Chad Underwood goes out there. He films this thing. What you see in the footage, again, when he gets a good firm lock on it and he zooms in and he's changing through the different camera you know, filters and the actual uh, you know, the aperture actually zooms in, you get a pretty tight lock on that object and you can see it. I mean, it looks essentially like what... Uh, Commander Fravor had described, along with pilot uh, Alex Dietrich, when they went out there during that intercept attempt. You know, they are, they're vectored out there, and they say that they see this thing they liken to being a tic-tac. At least what's in the footage, what, what we see in that video, grainy though it is, distorted though it is, you know, low-res though that is, it still seems at least superficially to match their description. Yes. And something that is very important, I think, is that we have to look back through ufological history and recognize that you know, that they referred to it as a tic-tac, but these egg-shaped or ovoid or cylindrical or cigar-shaped, many different names over the years, but these descriptions have been with us at least since the 1940s, Martin. You know, for instance, there was a very interesting file that actually, I think, turned up maybe both in the FBI and the CIA files, but it actually came from a civilian source. It was published back in the 1950s. It involved a test of skyhook balloons that was occurring, I believe, at White Sands back in, I think, 19... I think it was April of 1948. And as they were doing the test, they were training little telescopes, little telescopes that they were using on what they thought was the balloon. And then they are suddenly aware of this object moving through. And they say, that's not our balloon. That thing's moving far too quickly. And so they're armed with these telescopes. They are able to train their scope on this moving object. And at the speed it's moving, it's a little difficult to follow it, but they got a fairly good look at it. What do they describe it as? A oval-shaped a light-colored object that's moving very quickly, obviously not the skyhook balloon that they were actually following. Uh, this was, at least as far as a good documented case, and this was actually uh, featured by NICAP in their uh, publication, The UFO Evidence, which at that time was essentially what they considered to be the best, most reputable UFO data 
informed of eyewitness sightings and other collected information that was on hand and available at that time. This was published back in the 1960s, I believe. But uh, that case appears early in the record because it is one of the earliest, one of the best recorded sightings and also of interest to us today. Very similar in the description of the object to the famous Nimitz incident. And it's not the only one. This object, this general shape, as far as ufology goes, has been recorded for many decades. So, you know, this is something that's of interest to me. If we try to look at these cases like 2004 and the Nimitz incident and say, well, maybe China's out there, maybe Russia. And that's actually a possibility. Some of these modern UAP incidents very well could involve, uh, you know, foreign adversarial technologies. Uh, aviation journalist Ty Rogaway has made a very compelling argument that some of these may actually be low-level technologies that are attempting to try and gauge the efficacy of our radar systems and other technologies in use by these carrier strike groups. But when we look back through history and we say, okay, back in the 40s or the 50s, when people saw an anomalous object that was very similar in description, was that the Soviet Union? Was that China? <laughs> was there any state actor, including the United States, that had a technology like that at that time? The simple answer, none that are known. And if anybody did, we have to rewrite the history of aviation, folks. Not only that, you know, they would be used during wartime. I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, if we had that that type of capability, maneuverability, and all that. Well, certainly. Again, this is a very important question. If this technology was as an experimental development that occurred as far back as the 40s, or even as more, you know, let's say it was as recently as the 1970s or 80s, you know, would we not have seen this deployed during the Gulf War? You know, would this not have been deployed at some point? Would this not have been revealed just like the B-2 Spirit, you know, the stealth bomber? Just like any other once- secret technologies, again, the U-2 that was used back in the 1950s, you know, the Cold War spy plane technology, these, you know, aircraft cooked up out there at Groom Lake and actually flown and used for aerial reconnaissance of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Eventually, we learned about those, too. And, you know, that brings to mind, Martin, a very interesting conversation I had a few years ago with Robert Schaefer, uh, the noted skeptic. You know, I'd asked him one time, I said, do you think that there are, are earthly technologies that might account for some of these sightings. He said, no, no, I don't think so, because if that were the case, those technologies would have been revealed to us by now. So again, Robert is you know, right there with us. If these were ours, that would have been revealed. Most likely, these wouldn't have remained secret. There would have been some operational use, and there would thereby have been reporting on this, or it would have been declassified or, or disclosed to the public as other aviation developments. Now, again, that's a bit of a supposition on our part. The, the broader point I'm trying to emphasize is that essentially exactly what you and I are discussing and making a, I think, a fairly logical, likely argument for skeptics have said the same thing, too. Uh, now, where we would differ is that he would say those really anomalous sounding aircraft are you know, misperceptions. Some are hoaxes. Some are natural phenomena, but they're misidentified. You, know, you or I might say, well, maybe there's something more to it. But what's really, again, and this coming back to the recent videos. You know, the 2004 footage appears to show an object that's very similar, not only to what the pilot said that they'd encountered that day, but also that the history of ufology shows us that people have actually said they've encountered for many decades on many occasions. So here again, we have to ask ourselves, if this is a phenomenon that people have described seeing, we now have footage that appears to correlate with a modern sighting of one of these, and by military servicemen and women no less, can we really continue to say these are just hoaxes, misperceptions, you know, celestial phenomena and what have you? What appears in that video, indistinct though it may be, it looks pretty interesting and it looks a lot like the history of ufology and what it has told us about now for decades. Right. You know, in the, you know, the frust frustrating part has been 
um, when I've been listening along uh, the last, you know, 10 years that I've been doing this show, uh, when people will talk about the technology that they're seeing and, and only state it as if it's been around for the last few years only and not go back and look at historical cases. That's the one thing about what the uh, task force was doing. I believe they wouldn't look at anything before. I can't remember the date, but it was sometime in the 2000s. Uh, they were not going to look at anything historic uh, earlier than that because they said the technology for the data wasn't is not available uh, enough to give a really clear picture of what's going on. So, um, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Martin. No, no. I, I was basically just finishing up. Uh, so, they, you know, they, it's too bad. It's the old case of throwing, you know, the baby out with the bathwater, not taking a look at the historical cases. I believe I spoke with that the last time Lou Elizondo was on, on the show and he more or less agreed um, with that, that there should be historic cases looked into with the data that um, the data that does exist just to make the case that if these technologies were um, available back in 1965, then why haven't we seen them? If there are adversaries or some, you know, black project the government has or something. Yeah, certainly. You know, again, I think that the sort of, I think it might be fair to call it a fixation that people have on the modern cases. To your point, it does seem to have a lot to do with the idea that uh, in the early 2000s, our Navy and, of course, the Air Force, too, and other branches of the military began to update their equipment. And this is worthy of some discussion here, actually, because I've seen many people, Seth Shostak, you know, has rightly asked, what is it about our Navy aircraft? You know, why do they keep seeing these things? Well, one of the reasons seems to have been the fact that in the early 2000s, the Navy had just updated not only their F-A-18 fighter craft uh, with the targeting pod we were discussing earlier, the Raytheons at FLIR, but they also had updated their radar systems. You know, they no longer had a machine-controlled directional radar. They actually now have these phased array radars, also built by Raytheon, that are able to very quickly scan electronically and cover a much wider scope of the, you know, the, of the area around them than the earlier, actually this was based on 1980s technology radars that they'd been equipped with before that. Uh, most of those upgrades, according to my understanding, began in around 2007. And then, you know, over the course of the next several years, as they were updating these and these fleets were being deployed, people had pointed out, and obviously, actually, these updates had occurred a little earlier in the case of the Nimitz uh, incident, because that was in 2004. But case in point, they had recently upgraded, again, the USS Princeton has its Spy-1 Bravo, you know, radar. You can see the, uh, in the footage, if you, or, or if you look at photographs of the Princeton, you'll see this kind of hexagonal pad on the front of the ship. Now, I'm no expert in these military technologies. There are many people out there who are. Ty Rogaway, who I mentioned of the war zone, is certainly one yeah. of them. You know, and yeah. I've also spoken with the servicemen. You probably have as well, of course, Gary Voorhees, Kevin Day, and people who actually served on board the Princeton. Uh, I've talked with him about this a bit, too. But the point is, is that these upgrades had occurred fairly recently. And mentioning the war zone there for a moment, they were the first actually to report on the fact that, hey, you know what? It was right after these upgrades occurred, and they were equipped with these new radar systems, these new tracking pods, and there were certain other technologies, too. Uh, that's when they start observing these objects and they start picking up things, which – Again, one might make the argument they had been there yes. all along, but now they were 
equipped to detect these things. And, you know, a, a historical corollary for this, Martin, goes all the way back to the Second World War. You know, during mm-hmm. the Second World War, the United States, Canada, Germany, and then uh, shortly thereafter, other nations too, Britain, of course, also, they began to institute radar systems in wartime. And this new technology essentially accompanies what? When we start seeing, first of all, actually during the theater over Europe and also over the portions of the Pacific, these accounts involving sightings of so-called Foo Fighters and what have you. And it was in the years after the Second World War, once the conflict was over with, we really start seeing not only people saying they see things in the sky, but now we can also corroborate those visual sightings with this new technology, these radar systems. For a long time, there have been people who have tried to argue the first appearances of the UFOs occur right after we use nuclear weapons. Well, you know, if we take into account the Foo Fighter sightings, that's not necessarily true. If those represent UFO technologies, some of those sightings occurred well before there were use of nuclear weapons. Yes. And this whole idea that was kind of, you know, that proliferated for years that the, the intelligence, the phenomena, whatever it is, it was drawn to our use of nuclear technologies. There's, sef- there's definitely some good information that's suggestive of the fact that UAP are drawn to nuclear science facilities, uh, you know, aircraft carriers. That's definitely a component in all, in all this that we could talk about. But I don't think that we should say that that is where the modern ufology, as we know it, really begins. I would say technologically, that's when we were beginning to be equipped to be able to determine that there were objects in the sky. People had said they'd seen things for decades, maybe centuries before that. Uh, and again, that gets a little further back in time. You go far enough back, it's harder to corroborate those historical accounts. But there certainly are some accounts involving anomalous aerial phenomena throughout the ages that at least bear similarity to some of the modern accounts. And it's intriguing to entertain that idea that maybe these represent certain phenomena that have been with us much longer. I totally agree. And that that is something I've come up with uh, in my thoughts as well, that, you know, perhaps it's it's not that, uh, you know, we're just seeing these because they're just here now. It's only uh, we're seeing these because we have the technology to see these things differently than we ever had before. So I, I, I have definitely entertained that as well. And not saying that I'm correct or anything. I'm just suggesting that uh, that that is a, a very big possibility now that we have technology to see these things with you know, uh, that we didn't have before, whether even, you know, think about night vision. A lot of people have seen, you know, things on night vision that they haven't seen before. And, you know, many times I've, we, I've mentioned on this program too, we only see physically see in a very small spectrum of what is out there. And we don't, may not even have the idea how to, uh, have, you know, create equipment that can see completely where we can't. You know, because we may not understand, you know, the the waves or whatever it is. Well, you know, again, when we look at some of these modern accounts, what we are often hearing about are sightings of things that occurred. Either they were seen through, you know, the actual cockpit display, they were observed through infrared, but they were more difficult to discern visually. If it weren't for the radar or the infrared systems on board these aircraft, these objects might not have been discerned at all. So that is a compelling element to all this. And I make no no claims as to what the provenance is, you know, of these phenomena, how long they've been around. Again, we're entertaining some ideas here, but one might speculate that the fact that the technology has helped to augment human perception of the phenomenon may indicate that this could have been around for far longer and that we've just been limited in how much data we've been able to collect. Right. And I know you go all the way back to, 
you know, we can't say the cave paintings are accurate. We don't know. It could have been, uh, you know, their, their, it may have been their, their idea of what a god was or whatever. You know, some people argue that the gods are coming from the sky. Those are aliens. But, uh, you know, who knows? You know, it's, you, can't, you, you can't go back to that sliver of time and see where these, you know, drawings and thing, cave drawings were coming from either. Um, but you're down in an area right now where there's a lot of early history, human history. And uh, and that whole, you know, Central and South America is fascinating to me. Uh, can you talk about, uh, you mentioned that you're doing some interviews. Can you talk about um, any particular cases that you're researching or anything along those lines or people you're speaking with? Uh, yeah, I can. And uh, briefly, I know that, of course, you and I both share an uh, interest in archaeology, Martin, and so it's it's great that you mentioned the fact that there's a long history of human uh, involvement in South America because uh, I had the pleasure of talking a while back with um, Tom Dillahay of Vanderbilt University, and he was the archaeologist that led the excavations at a site called Monteverde in Chile, and uh, that, of course, is a site that was first recognized for being earlier than what we recognize as Clovis, there are actually radiocarbon dates there from Monteverde B that go back in excess of 30,000 years. So as you mentioned, yes, humans have been here on the South American continent for a very long time. That raises some intriguing questions, but they're beyond the scope of what we're discussing tonight. As far as UAP here in Brazil, uh, you know, last September I was down here in Brazil uh, again, or, or that was my original uh, trip. I'm here again now. And uh, we visited the Chapada dos Viaderos, which is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It's, you know, again, most people, when they think of Brazil, they think of, you know, the Amazon rainforest. Chapada dos Viaderos is very different. It, it actually more closely resembles uh, the African savanna. But there are these really beautiful uh, river systems and waterfalls all throughout the Chapada. And it's also known for its abundance of quartz, quartz crystal in, you know, various parts, especially around these waterfalls. And you can get out there in the water and you can kind of run your hands through the stone and you'll see all these beautiful, you know, shaped uh, crystals that come up in, in, in your hand that have been hewn over time and that are uh, kind of revealed by the water. Uh, beautiful area, but of course, also in addition to its natural beauty, there are many stories of sightings of aerial phenomena. Uh, to give a couple of examples, the Brazilian UFO magazine that I mentioned earlier, published by A.J. Girard, uh, described a case from Chapada a number of years ago where there was a, a group that had actually gone to the site. And one of the nearby towns is called Alto Parizu. And I've actually stayed for a few days in Alto Parizu, and we spoke with some of the locals who had had their own encounters. I'll get to that in a moment. But the article was describing a tour group from that site. And they had uh, gone out to this location, and one of the uh, women who was with the tour suddenly vanished. Nobody could find her. And... They spend several minutes looking for her, and then they say, you know, she's just gone. They they go and they get the local police, and they bring the police out. And then after, I think, more than an hour, they finally find the woman. She comes stumbling up toward the tour group. Uh, she's a little, you know, battered and bruised looking, uh, but she's okay. And they said, where were you? And uh, she said, all I know is that I came to right over there. And she points to an area just a few, maybe, you know, 100 yards away. And she says, the last thing I remember was there being a very bright light, and I walked toward it. And then she vanished, and, and right there in the midst of all these other people. Uh, now, there were numerous locations in Chapada, which, by the way, you have to hire a guide to actually be able to go in there. And uh, one of the areas that we went down into, our guide 
was telling us all about how one night driving his pickup home back to Alto Parizo, where he actually lives, he said he was followed by a blue kind of orb of light that uh, descended from the sky, uh, reached a level over the highway uh, that it kind of, you know, maintained and it kept a pace with his truck as it followed him down the road. And it followed him almost all the way to Alto Parizo and then turned off before he actually reached the town. But what he told us was that many of the locals have had these kinds of experiences. There are certain superstitions, you know, everybody interprets things a lot differently, uh, you know, from what you probably think. Um, many people actually in the town embrace this. And this was a big shock to me. I got to the town thinking, oh, okay, you know, it will be interesting if anybody talks at all about these alleged UFO sightings at this place. <laughs> but we got there at night. The next day we go out and uh, as we're walking around town, there are, I mean, shops that are called, you know, the Alienigenas. This is alien in, in Brazilian Portuguese. You know, the Alien Inn, there's a uh, bed and breakfast that has a flying saucer out front. There's a restaurant called Area 51. So, yes, I would liken it very much to Roswell, uh, Sedona, Arizona. They very much embrace the culture uh, and the whole, in, in fact, certain aspects of American ufology as well. But what's particularly interesting to me about that, Martin, is that, you know, I've heard commentators try to say that, you know, UFOs are a phenomenon that primarily only occur in the Western world, especially the United States. This is a culture-bound phenomenon. Why don't people see UFOs in other parts of the world? Look, I've got news for you. There's as much interest, there's as much cultural significance, and there are as many sightings and historical data in support of these kinds of sightings in Brazil as any place I've visited. Excellent. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, it's it sounds fascinating. Sounds like, uh, you know, you mentioned the word, you mentioned the geological um, aspect uh, that, that's featured in that area as quartz, and I find that very interesting because you, it just seems to be one of the things that often comes up in an area where they consider like a hotspot. Um, you know, it's not just quartz, but a lot of times, you know, like a high, um, you know, copper uh, content in the area or veins of copper and things like that. Um, and so I, I find this, this thing about quartz, what you're saying is pretty interesting. Yes, it is. I find that interesting also because, again, I'm a longtime student of William R. Corliss and, uh, you know, the, the idea that there are natural geophysical phenomena that produce what have variously been described as nocturnal lights, all different kinds of yes. phenomena and things along those lines. Uh, but uh, one of those hot spots that you're talking about is Brown Mountain, North Carolina. Right. Yes. And, you know, I've spent many, many years going down to Brown Mountain, the the, uh, the uh, elusive and enigmatic Dr. Krasinski, my host uh, down here in Brazil, uh, actually came up to the United States and visited. And uh, we, we went down to uh, Brown Mountain, and I've taken many people there over the years. David Weatherly, of course, a lot of researchers have joined me there. Um, I may have even appeared in a couple of documentaries at that location, but I, I bring it up here because not only are there earth lights, as some have called them, or UFOs, you know, anomalous aerial phenomena that are seen there, but there is also an abundance of quartz there, Martin, and this is something I've actually been there on Brown Mountain proper with geologists. And, uh, you know, we, we not only see a lot of quartz, there's also a lot of granite. There are, uh, you know, what appear to be traces of, you know, magnetic uh, or at least, you know, uh, particles in the in the dust and the soil samples that we took that are responsive 
two magnets, but then again, any number of, you know, you know, traces of iron and, and, you know, other kinds of, you know, natural metallic deposits could account for that. But I mean, one thing that you see more than anything else geologically is quartz. And there have been a lot of uh, theories over the years that have been proposed by those who are more the natural proponents of, of UAP. And again, this kind of echoes sort of what we see in the Project Condine report from the UK, which had been the genesis in modern times for the U.S. military's use of UAP. They actually state that we borrowed that from the UK. Well, it was in the Project Condine report where they say UAP are real, but we think that these are natural. They're probably plasmas. And one theory for the mechanism that may allow for the appearances of these plasmas is that indeed quartz being piezoelectric uh, is able to produce, once it's under pressure, it's able to produce electrical, uh, you know, energy, essentially. Like, for instance, a simple example is you can take two pieces of quartz, and if you go into a dark room and rub them together, you'll see little sparks, and you'll sometimes actually see the quartz rocks, you know, glow. Uh, this looks very strange, but it's simply just, it's this piezoelectric process, uh, uh, property that the quartz has, and I don't know what the mechanism would be that would allow for these, you know, self-contained luminous orbs about the size of a basketball or a beach ball to occur. But people do report seeing these kinds of things at Brown Mountain. Hestel in Norway is another one. I think uh, Paulding yes. is another location. We have, of course, the famous Marfa lights down there in Texas. Um, there's another case uh, or a location like this in Arkansas where people describe what they variously refer to as ghost lights, you know, spook lights, uh, you know, swamp gas things like this. Now, I don't think there's swamp gas by any means. That's kind of a dirty word in the history of ufology. <laughs> yeah. the hard way. But I do think that geophysical phenomena of an electrical variety could account for some of these UAP sightings. And what you picked up on there, Martin, uh, is exactly what I thought when we visited Chapada. I thought, you know, with the abundance of quartz in this region, there's a pretty good case to be made that the phenomena people see and describe, you know, is similar enough to Hastelin or Brown Mountain, and maybe there is some sort of a geophysical phenomena that's occurring here as well. Yes, I did a I did a show a while back with someone that did a documentary on on Brown Mountain, um, and I I thought it was very interesting at the time, but that was several years ago. But when you were there, did you actually witness um, did you witness lights when you were there? On a couple of occasions, I've observed, you know, what you might call illuminations. But you, you, when you go down there and you talk to the locals, everyone who claims to have seen the Brown Mountain Lights describes seeing it differently. One of the most uh, compelling accounts I ever received was actually from a firefighter who, had, back in the early 2000s, said he'd been on duty and that it was uh, Christmas Eve. Several uh, firefighters who were traveling up and down 181, Highway 181, which goes right alongside the Brown Mountain Overlook. He said that they'd all seen what they described as looking almost like uh, sheet lightning, if you have ever seen that. Those quick kind of flashes in the sky, especially during, you know, the summertime, humid summer nights. You see those quick kind of flashes off in the distance. He said something that looked almost like that, but moving sort of across the surface of the mountain at ground level is what many of them observed. Uh, and he said, you know, I know for a fact that the so-called brown mountain lights exist, but he says a lot of people come up here and act like they're UFOs, say they're intelligent, say they've communicated with the lights and all this stuff. He says, that's just people playing brown mountain lights. But he says, I can assure you as a firefighter, several people in our unit that night who are all working, we all saw those lights and they're nothing like what are popularly described. But then there are some who actually do describe aerial phenomena. Charles Braswell is a photographer from down in Charlotte, North Carolina, who spent, I mean, years going up there. And he's gotten some of the most compelling photographs that I've ever seen 
of alleged luminous aerial phenomena that occurs at night. I also have to mention the uh, photography of my friend Bill Fox and the late Bob Ashmore. Uh, Bill and Bob and I have spent many years going up there, and sadly, uh, last year, Bob Ashmore passed away, but uh, Bob and Bill, of course, are longtime citizen scientists. Bob also formerly worked at Bell Laboratories, and they had a a non-professional interest. It was a hobby. They would come come down on the, the summers, you know, and everything, and uh, they get to come down twice a year. The first trip is to bring their wives down for shopping, and then the second time is to come down, hike around, and try and see the brown mountain lights. But uh, Bob and Bill and I spent many, many evenings up there at Brown Mountain with cameras, telescopes, things. They got some good photographs. Sadly, I have not had that sighting. So to answer your question, that, that full-on, wow, that's indisputably one of the Brown Mountain lights. I haven't had that sighting. Uh, but a gentleman who I interviewed a number of years ago uh, saw something perhaps even more extraordinary at Brown Mountain. He had gone up there to the famous overlook at uh, Wiseman's View, and he was trying to observe the lights. And he said there was another family up there that night from Charlotte, North Carolina, and they'd been chatting. And he said all of a sudden what came into view uh, <laughs> startled him. He said there was a large distinctly triangular shaped aircraft moving completely silently. It was very large. He estimated it was about the size of a football field uh, with this distinct kind of leading edge. And he said this thing silently just drifted over the Linville Gorge. And he said, you know, I wished after the fact that this family from Charlotte and I had exchanged information because they all saw it. We all marveled at what this big triangle was flying over the Linville Gorge. Now, (laughs) <laughs> what does that sound like, Martin? I mean, you and I have heard these stories for years of these so-called black triangles. Right. And those reports really, really interest me. But I'd never heard of one being seen at Brown Mountain before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's funny how many people describe them the size of a football field or more. I mean, it's it's almost like every time you hear the same the same thing or, or you know, um, or, or even larger than that. Pretty amazing. Yeah, that's a consistent. That's a very consistent feature of these sightings. You know, I mean, again, there was the famous Belgium wave from back in the early 1990s. Uh, but a lot of researchers have taken interest in those black triangle reports. I mean, for a time, the Federation of American Scientists had several pages online uh, devoted to what they called mystery aircraft. And they've been collecting a lot of reports of what were variously called everything from the big wing to the black triangles. Uh, they, there were a lot of different names, a lot of different theories about what these things might have been. Greg Pope, who had been a writer for Popular Mechanics back in the 1990s, uh, did a lot of research going out there to the Antelope Valley and, and interviewing people about what they had said that they'd seen. One of the theories at that time had been that some of these large aircraft were actually a large aerial radar reflector uh, kind of a kind of a technology rather than being so much a, a actual aircraft. Another theory had been that these are an aircraft and that there's some kind of a platform blimp, uh, perhaps used, uh, you know, for stealth purposes uh, in in service to or to to coordinate with fighter aircraft. Now, if these had ever been deployed for for use during combat, coming back to our earlier point, I think a lot of people would describe having seen these large triangles. I've actually only heard a couple of stories of triangular aircraft seen in wartime. Uh, one friend of mine who had actually uh, served in Afghanistan. He had said, of all places, he was actually at the latrine one night, and he'd been standing out there. And he, he said he, he looked up, and he saw an, what he perceived as being silent, uh, but it was a triangular-shaped aircraft that passed directly over him uh, in the direction of the nearby city. Uh, and I asked him, I said, could you hear any noise? And he said, well, I couldn't, but you know, we had generators and things running out there. 
and it, it might have been difficult for me to discern whether or not this object made any noise. But he said, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you, we saw aircraft coming in, in and out you know, of, the, of this area all the time, and I'd never seen anything like that. And then there was a similar report that was indicated to me by a military uh, – I think it was actually part of military police who said he'd observed a craft like this one night uh, and that he only got a, a very brief look at it, brought it to the attention of a couple of nearby guards in plainclothes – uh, who, when he brought it to their attention, they said, we didn't see anything, and you didn't either. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of the, you know, one of the, the things when you think about the, the triangle and, and what you, uh, I've heard this, the the thought that it could be some type of blimp, but it wouldn't make, to me, it wouldn't make any sense to have a blimp in the shape of a triangle. I wouldn't see what advantage that would have unless I'm I'm missing something. And uh, and and why, uh, you know, what, where would it be housed? You know, when you're talking about this size, uh, when something doesn't have to be flat and, and wide, you know, where would you, how would you put something like that in a hangar, you know, when it comes to that size? Yeah. So a lot yeah, of questions. The answers to those questions. Certainly. Uh, I do know that there was a RAND Corporation study that was conducted on airships and blimps. Uh, I have not been able to find that report. In fact, I'm not sure that that was ever made publicly available. Uh, but uh, oh, I, actually, I'm sorry, I, I don't think that was a RAND Corporation study. That may have actually been conducted by another group, but um, I've, I've been trying to get a, uh, a copy of this report for years. Um, but to the point of the, the blimp argument, again, I, I'm more inclined to think that our military might use certain kinds of stealth blimp technologies that have not been publicly disclosed for various reasons. Then I am to think that the sightings of these so-called giant triangles, the black triangles, are simply your average everyday blimp. Uh, you know, I've communicated over the years a little with uh, Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast. And I like Brian. Oh, yeah. He's a nice guy. But Brian, he's tried to argue that uh, the famous St. Clair County, Illinois sightings from back in 2000, which David Marler, as you know, has just done incredible work investigating those. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, he, this is the, the main argument that Brian has tried to present is that this was just one of the American airship company's blimps uh, that was out there giving a, a guided VIP tour that night. And I'm asking, of course, you know, well, who was taking a VIP tour at 3 a.m.? Where is the flat log that shows that it was anybody taking a VIP tour at 3 a.m. And furthermore, why did, you know, all these police from, I think, the Milstead County and then the Shiloh Police Department, and there were several other municipal police departments with officers that were involved in observing this object that night. I think David Marler has chronicled this in his book, uh, uh, Triangular UFOs, an Estimate of the Situation, uh, which everybody should go and check out. But again, if you read that book and you read the accounts given by the officers, yet again, they all describe a distinctly triangular aircraft, yet again, about the size of a football field. It was very large, made very little sound. It had three lights, one at each corner, and also uh, was capable of drifting along very slowly and then sudden acceleration, almost kind of like if you've ever seen a water bug on the surface of a pond where they'll kind of speed up and they'll move along and they'll glide and then they'll kind of come to a slow stop and they'll hover for a minute and then they'll move again very quickly. These triangular craft are sometimes described as kind of moving in bursts like that. And whatever it is that these objects are, that also sounds very unlike a typical blimp, uh, if indeed they are capable of the kind of maneuvers that some have described seeing them do. So again, I'm open to the idea that maybe we have some kind of technology like this. We don't always necessarily immediately need to leap to the conclusion, therefore aliens, right? But I'm also (laughs) 
apt. I, I'm not very. I'm not very inclined to say that this was just a conventional blimp. And if it was, I mean, show me a good record of the flight logs. Give me good data that really strongly supports that conclusion, because all the eyewitness testimony seems to go in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, Micah, I have. And uh, I was having trouble at this hotel with uh, internet, but unfortunately, I've run out of data on my. Uh, on my on my phone, so I like you was using my phone, and I just got to notice. I'm going to have to uh, jump out for a minute, but you'll still be live here. And I'm wondering if you can tell people a little bit about your show and how they can catch it. And uh, and then I will uh, I'll be back as soon as I can. Absolutely, and I'm glad I'm not the only one who's been experiencing trouble. Uh, you know, my tech support crew here tonight did a, a marvelous job getting us back on the line, and I got to thank uh, Rafael and Danny, uh, who are here tonight, who who made that happen because we had uh, obviously a, an area wide outage. And uh, those who think that the men in black are exclusive to the United States, think again. <laughs> but all kidding aside, you know, my program is the Micah Hanks program. You can find that uh, at micahanks.com forward slash podcast. I actually produce a lot of different podcasts, and uh, there are four of them right now, plus subscriber shows that I produce for everybody. Um, and that, in addition to what I'm doing over there at thedebrief.org, which is something else that I'm pretty well known for these days. I'm the editor-in-chief and also a contributor, also the newsletter writer for the Debrief. And uh, this is an endeavor that I've undertaken uh, recently with Tim McMillan and uh, MJ Benias. Uh, not exclusively UAP, but we do do a lot of UAP reporting. Same deal with the Micah Hanks program. It's not only a program that deals with UAP, but there have been, I mean, almost every week, significant developments with this topic. And so I've really, in recent years, uh, shifted my focus over onto that. And so when folks go online and they find the Micah Hanks program, you can hear that right here on KGRA, by the way. Uh, it's a program that you're going to hear a lot of analysis, a lot of discussions about this topic that's so familiar to listeners of Podcast UFO. I'm not sure if Martin's back yet, so we could just talk a little bit yes, more here. <laughs> I, no, no, I just came back. Um, hopefully this is working. You can hear me okay? Sure. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. Absolutely. Good. I'm very glad yeah. it's not only me being affected tonight. Right. <laughs> um, so I, I've got a couple of questions that have come up in chat, and um, I'd like to... Uh, ask them because tonight, since you're using that phone line, hopefully I'm coming through clear enough. Uh, uh, let's see. Since we can't use the phone line, I'm asking anyone that has questions, if you want to just put them in all caps, that would be good. So Richard wanted to know, uh, is the goal of ufology to mainstream the study of UFOs? If so, what is the methodology to achieve this? Any thoughts on that, Micah? Okay. So the question is, is is the goal to bring ufology into the mainstream? And if so, how do we do that? Well, I would say that, you know, yes, the idea is to bring ufology into the mainstream. The problem with that, though, I'm a musician and everybody who has ever played in a rock band uh, probably knows what it's like, you know, when there's this cool new band on the scene and you go see that band and you're like, wow, this is my band. And you get to hang out with the band members uh, you know, and, and if that band is lucky and they strike it big and they get a record deal and then you you can't go hang out with your buddies at the bar anymore, you know, they're touring and playing, you know, big arenas, then the, the fans who were once, you know, the local supporters of that band, they're like, oh, well, now we're really disappointed. They sold out. And I'm afraid yeah. that in ufology, if it goes into the mainstream, you probably see where I'm going with this. If ufology yeah. 
which has been something that there's sort of been kind of a counterculture that surrounds it. You know, people who go to conferences and who, you know, put put up, uh, you know, tables at these conferences in the vendor rooms and they sell books and they and actually I enjoy that. A lot of people do. I've always enjoyed that sort of cultural side of this. But as soon as this becomes a thing, which as in recent years we have begun to see where the U.S. Navy comes out and says we've got videos, the Pentagon comes out and it officially authorizes the release of these videos so as to help try and clear the air and say, yes, these things are ours. Yes, these objects are unidentified. And then we establish this AYMSG, right, this Airborne Object Identification Management and Synchronization Group. Greatest name ever. Crazy, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I love that one. I mean, it's, it just rolls right off the tongue. But but the point is, is again, that, you know, as soon as government really makes this a thing and now everybody's like, finally, finally, they're taking this subject seriously. And now no longer are those civilian UFO researchers the ones in the spotlight. Everybody wants to hear what the government officials have to say about this. And there are still some, you know, old guard UFO, UFO researchers uh, who have maintained a presence and who, you know, the the analysis and the feedback that they provide is as relevant as ever, if not more so. But everybody, I think, can acknowledge that there's been a bit of a shift toward, you know, if it ain't coming from the government, we don't want to hear about it. It's not news unless it was a leaked document that somebody either got through FOIA or if it was official announcement or proclamation from the DOD via a press statement that appeared at defense.gov. You know, that seems to be where everybody's focus is. But again, we look back to history and folks, this has happened before. Project Blue Book under the U.S. Air Force was the longest running government systematic study that looked at UAP. Yes, we are maybe more equipped to study this with better technology than in years past. But again, I doubt that we're probably going to solve this and resolve the, the lingering questions about UAP. I think, if anything, what we'll see more of right now is simply going to be an acknowledgement that, hey, you know what, people, military servicemen and women, civilians alike, had said that they'd been seeing in our skies. Yeah, now we have a better idea on the fact that these objects exist, but we're really no closer to determining their provenance. But again, yeah. in terms of how do we do this and, and what happens when we do this, when we bring ufology into the mainstream, first, I think there has to be that acknowledgement. I think that in order to do this, we have to continue to try and leverage certain pressure on lawmakers in Washington, you know, reach out to your elected officials, your senators, your congressmen and women, let them know that this is important to you. You know, support the efforts of civilian organizations, scientific groups, my friend, Dr. Avi Loeb, of course, and the uh, Galileo Project. Uh, this is something that is absolutely necessary because as Avi has said, the skies aren't classified. And even if the government isn't going to release all the data it collects, when scientists are taking this seriously and actively pursuing trying to collect data on it themselves, Again, there's less likelihood that that's going to be withheld from the general public. So those are ways that I think we can continue to really leverage the kind of momentum we've seen in recent recent years. I hope that continues, but there's going to be that bittersweet side of it where a lot of people are going to feel like their favorite band sold out. And the UFO subject that was their subject at their conferences that they went to every summer, it may not be that for them any longer, but I hope that the trade-off will be for the better and that we'll finally begin to get some clarity and some attention put on a subject that many people have been pushing for that kind of attention for, for years. I agree. And there's been a lot of attacks on certain people that have tried to move the needle forward. Um, you know, just because of exactly what you're saying, you know, there's egos involved. There's, there's a, a division out there and, you know, nothing you can really do about that. It seems like that's, follows about every aspect of our society. Anyway, um, get another question up here. 
uh, by someone that likes you. <laughs> so um, what could be the reason UFOs are visible to only a few people, sometimes despite appearing in a fairly populated area? Big fan of Micah. Uh, it's, it's always nice to hear that somebody that does still like me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's there are a lot of different. Uh, and again, that's another funny thing about all this is that uh, as a reporter, as, as again, I dread to call myself a journalist, but I guess that is what I do. And I, I used to work in radio. I've tried to credibly report on this subject for more than a decade myself, going all the way back to my days working in terrestrial radio. And now the team and I continue to try and, uh, you know, work in that sphere with the debrief. But you're always going to have people that if you are attempting to report credibly on this subject, they say, what's your really modus, you know, your real modus operandi? Why are you a, why are you a disinfo agent? You know, and we joke about that a lot, but I mean, a lot of people do actually believe that. So I really appreciate the people who still support me. <laughs> but uh, as far as the question, you know, why might some people see something and, uh, and others might not. This is interesting too, because uh, there is some literature that's suggestive of some people maybe having uh, and again, I refer again to the uh, work of William R. Corliss, who documented all kinds of anomalous phenomena in nature, including biological nature and also anomalous ob observations, you know, with regard to humans. There is at least some data that supports people who have uh, a, a, a deeper capability, I guess, to perceive light and near darkness than other people do. And one theory, I mean, this is entirely speculative, but we might hypothesize that some some people actually possess a better ability to perceive, you know, in near darkness, they may have even be able to perceive, you know, closer to the infrared spectrum. Now, again, that's not the visible band of light. That's not the, the, the actual spectrum that humans have evolved to be able to operate in. But if we were to speculate that some people had a limited ability to perceive uh, more in that area of the electromagnetic spectra that we're talking about, the infrared, that might explain some people's alleged ability to see objects where others cannot. And again, I referenced the Navy videos where pilots, in many cases, if you refer to the 2019 New York Times article where Ryan Graves and other servicemen and women uh, were quoted, talking about how, you know, a couple times these things were seen, but more often than not, people only saw them in the infrared. That seems to indicate one of a couple of things. Either these are objects that are by virtue of their design or whatever they may be, they operate and they appear only in the infrared, or they appear to, and this seems to be the opinion of the military, that these things are capable of uh, using signal management and other kinds of, again, what we would call, I think, in sci-fi parlance, cloaking technologies. But I prefer signal management because what it appears to be is some kind of an electromagnetic um, technology Used. We can only speculate about what it is and how it might work, but it is used to, you know, make them less visible, both in the visible spectrum and also it's to help them be, uh, you know, able to evade radar a little better. They are able to uh, perhaps even jam or 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 confuse uh, equipment technologies that would be used to detect these objects. Uh, these are all things. These are all characteristics that some UAP have been observed doing by our military as re uh, related in the ODNI report from last uh, summer. And again, the frustrating part is that we don't have specifics on what kinds of, of you know, frequency and, and signals management specifically is being done. Most of that's redacted. 
And I will here again call attention to the recent release by John Greenwald of the classified version of that report that he managed to get just a little longer than the one that we all saw last summer. But there's still a lot more information in there. I'm hoping in the future we can get some of those redactions removed. But again, the broader point is if some of these objects are capable of operating primarily in the infrared and that the human eye is incapable of seeing them, you know, whether they are natural, whether they are technological, whatever they may be, that might be one reason why some people claim, hey, you know, I actually saw a light. I saw an object that was faint, but there was something in the sky when a person next to him might say, I, I didn't see anything. Right. No, that happens a lot. You do hear you do hear a lot of times where, um, you know, people be standing side by side and like, look, do you see that? Or or, or they'll see two different entirely different things, which is another another one of the mysteries out there, if you ask me. Is. And I'll briefly just add, Martin, that, I mean, some would also say, and I think that this is at least worthy of entertaining, I try not to get too, too speculative when we're talking about these things, you know, just the facts, ma'am, but there is the consciousness side of this where some might argue that, well, maybe being able to see these objects requires, a, you know, a shift of your perspective or even your consciousness. There are the anecdotes about, you know, the indigenous Americans who first encountered Europeans, and sometimes they didn't perceive their large sailing vessels, of course, as being sailing vessels because they never encountered anything like that. Now, that may be, uh, you know, somewhat not just anecdotal, but it actually may be, uh, you know, an entire misperception of, of the accounts that were given by people at that period, you know, when contact between Europe and, and the New World first occurred. But, you know, again, the idea that a person who's frame of reference is so far outside of the technology that they're observing that they don't observe it and even witness it and, and perceive it as being a technology is compelling to me. And you do hear that argument raised from time to time. If we were really to see an alien spaceship, I see Neil deGrasse Tyson and people all the time saying, oh, come on, guys, we would know a spaceship if we saw one. I have to say, would we really? Are we really right. so sure we would recognize such an advanced technology if it were entering our atmosphere. I mean, it might per be perceived in a number of ways. And in fact, if it's far enough outside of our frame of reference, it may be perceived as, oh, I didn't really see that. And people just discount it, which is precisely what many do with UFOs, isn't it? Right, right. I have sort of a, oh, I don't want to say love-hate relationship. I don't want to use that. But I have kind of, you know, back and forth thoughts about Neil deGrasse Tyson. I was actually looking to go see him. He's going to be in Boston in September. And I thought, well, you know, a friend of mine and I were thinking about, and maybe even my son as well, thinking about going to see him. And then I saw the minimum tickets were $106. Excuse me. It's not a rock band. <laughs> I don't, I don't understand where he gets off. Uh, and maybe he can fill a stadium at $106 plus some seats are 300 something dollars. Which which baffles me, but I did I I did put up a clip. Smart. Yeah, he's, a, he's about as close to a rock star as far as physicists go. He's about as close to being a rock star as you could get, isn't he? <laughs> so I mean, I, I guess so. I, I guess so. Yeah, but you know, I mean, as far as his closed mindedness on the UFA UFO topic, you know, I I put together a, a little clip that's on my channel somewhere, where he basically is saying. You know, that um, when science uh, and science, you have to know when you when to say you don't understand or you don't know. But he doesn't. He he goes and makes these claims that, you know, why is it 
only military are seeing, you know, UFOs, that type of thing. So he can be, in my opinion, he can be rather arrogant and not open-minded like a scientist should be when it comes to um, what people are seeing for UFOs, UAPs, whatever you want to call them. Indeed. Well, you know, I'll just point out, I have gone, I've seen him talk. I like Neil. I appreciate what he does as far as, you know, uh, science, uh, you know, as a science communicator, I appreciate what he does. But when I see people asking him on, on you know, the mainstream media shows on the in the news cycles about UFOs, I have to step back and ask, you know, how is he or why is he supposed to be any more an expert on this purported anomalous aerial phenomenon than anybody else? I mean, because he is and I, I think it was Allison Camarota that actually said at one point, but you look at through it, you know, you look at the sky through a telescope. So you are an expert on this to which he responded. No, I'm not an expert on this. He says, I'm glad our military is looking into it. Because they're the very ones who need to be looking at these things. If these things are in our airspace, our military aircraft are encountering these things, I want the military looking at them. But he said, no, that's not what I do. I study stars. They're way out there. And, you know, to his point, he, what he's really saying is, no, I'm not a UFO expert. And if there are objects we can't identify, let's let the military look at those. But to your point, Martin, there have been many instances where Neil has said things like, you know, if these fuzzy videos are the best that we've got, I ain't impressed. Well, let's break that down really quickly. This is some of the most sophisticated tracking equipment in use by our military right now. And they claim that they are using this technology to track and to film objects that are very fast. They are very difficult to detect, let alone to lock onto and to film. If indeed we are looking at a significantly advanced technology that makes itself very unavailable to the best technology that we have, those aren't little fuzzy, unimpressive videos. To me, those are some of the most important videos that have ever ever been made. And again, when they were released officially uh, by the DOD in April of 2020, and they referred to them as historical Navy videos, I think that's a great way to describe them. I think one day we will look back on those three videos that you and I have talked about so much tonight, and we will recognize them as being historic in the sense that they were the first, albeit an imperfect and a fairly crude attempt, but they were a first attempt at filming and observing a phenomenon that people have claimed to see for quite a while, and that in the future, I hope, with any luck, we're going to learn a whole lot more about. Right. Um, you know, this probably, well, according to, you, you, I'm sure you've heard this as you're, you you really pay attention to the topic, but, um, you know, the, supposedly there's this 23-minute video that we're all going to get to see where I thought it was going to be last year, but eventually um, that Lou Elizondo is pretty certain that you know, we're going to be seeing at some point. And I'll be very interested in seeing that. And that has to do with multiple UFOs. And, you know, so because what we have so far are these little clips that are what, I don't know how many seconds long, but not long. And uh, according to um, what I have heard, the reason we don't see more of those is because it might reveal something, you know, top secret and maybe the way we're capturing um, or whatever. There's something supposedly that has to do with why we're only seeing sh such, you know, short clips in general. Yeah. And there are some issues with that, uh, which again, to your point, I've heard a lot of these, I've, I've heard virtually every one of these claims that there are longer versions of the videos that we know about. And then that there are entirely other videos that we haven't heard anything about. I don't doubt that there are lots of videos out there, you know, but part of the problem is, I guess, knowing what to ask for, knowing what to look for, 
I mean, even if you if you work within government, you have to know what to go looking for. And then there is, you know, a declassification process that, you know, one is supposed to go through. But of course, what was ultimately determined about the current existing three Navy videos is they were unclassified for special use only. And there wasn't any problem with them ultimately having been released. Although there were various investigations when they were first released by the New York Times, I think the Air Force Office of Special Investigations first got into the game. They looked at these videos to try and determine if there were any technologies or sensitive, uh, you know, equipment or capabilities uh, with the equipment used in the footage uh, and its and its uh, you know capture that were being revealed by the footage itself. They determined nothing sensitive was being released. These videos weren't classified. And eventually, it took them until 2020, but again, the DOD did eventually authorize them for release. And at that time, they said in the official Pentagon statement, which is still on the DOD website, that this is to help clear up questions about whether these videos are real or whether there are lengthier versions of the videos. Now, again, I spoke with Gary Voorhees about this, and he said, you know, they're in the, uh, you know, the command center, the, the, what they call, I guess, the, is it, is it uh, the COC, I think they call it, uh, on board the Princeton. He said that when Fravor and them flew out there and they were attempting to actually engage this object, he said that, you know, I mean, we were all watching the video. And he said, I remember there being a link to your video. Uh, another gentleman who I spoke to who on the record came on my program, Ryan Weigelt, uh, he also said, I recall being in there. Uh, he said, I was doing other things in the room at the time, but he said there was clearly a video. He says it wasn't just that little clip that everybody's seen on YouTube. There was a much lengthier video. And I even asked uh, Lieutenant Ryan, uh, Weigelt, I mean, do you do you think it could have been on replay or on loop? And he said, I, w- I couldn't tell you because he said we all had so many different jobs and things we were doing on the ship. That wasn't my focus at the time, but he said, I clearly remember that footage being played. Gary Voorhees, on the other hand, said, no, it was definitely a lengthier video. He had initially told me he thought that that was actually not the Atfleer footage that we're all familiar with, that this was actually what's called the Link 6 uh, or uh, – I think actually the link, the link 16, but he had, after initially telling me that, he said, actually, I don't think that's the footage. That wouldn't have been in use on the system that we had at that time, and therefore I couldn't have been observing it through that. So the footage I saw must have been the footage that everyone has seen, but he said, I distinctly remember there being a longer version. So a lot of people have said that. People have also talked about the radar bricks from the Princeton that were taken by two men in plain clothes who came on board the ship right. and took the, this radar data. Christian Lambright, last point I'll make here about the videos at least, and information about the Nimitz thing that we haven't seen. Christian Lambright, who is, again, another very diligent FOIA researcher uh, of many years, but he got the FOIA back, which stated to him that, you know, naval intelligence does have another piece of footage related to the Nimitz incident, but that is currently not eligible for release due to its classification status. Uh, in not so many words, I'm not quoting directly from the FOIA response that he received, but they did say essentially there's a video we have, but we can't release that. So whatever form it may take, whichever one Mr. Elizondo is referring to, I've spoken with Lou a bit, uh, and I don't doubt that if Lou says there is a video, that one exists. But I wonder, right. and I really do about that other footage related to the Nimitz. Will we ever see that? Will it ever be de- declassified? I don't know. Right. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I spoke with Gary about that as well. I'm going to try to play this video. Hopefully the audio will play with it. This was uh, the Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, kind of the irony, and here it goes. We'll see if you hear the audio. Uh, 
anticipated Pentagon investigation found no evidence these UFOs were alien spacecraft, but they're not ruling out the possibility either. So you have a whole chapter of your book called Are We Alone in the Universe? So I'm going to ask you, do you think these UFOs are extraterrestrial in nature? Yeah, so first of all, um, that book is a collection of questions we have all had about our place in the universe. And top two or three questions I'm ever asked are, are we alone in the universe? So this is right at the center of people's core of curiosity. That's first. Second, um, the, the, the universe brims with mysteries. And we so want many of those mysteries to be some favored uh, answer that we might carry. You see a light in the sky you don't understand. Gee, I want that to be aliens visiting us. And so in science, however, you want you look at, you, you rank possibilities by likelihood, okay? These Navy videos, you have to ask, if they are aliens visiting, why are they only visiting Navy pilots? How about the rest of Earth's surface? There are three billion smartphones on this planet. Each one is a high resolution color camera and video recorder. So basically, <laughs> aliens invasions have been crowdsourced to the population of the planet. If anybody's, any alien is landing anywhere, it's gonna, look what else we have already streamed that used to be rare, but we knew was happening, all right? Like police violence and all of this. If aliens landed, you know we would have it. It would be <laughs> viral overnight, but instead they're cat videos. Go viral. <laughs> well, Neil, new NASA chief Bill Nelson has said that they're launching their own investigation into the UFOs as well and acknowledges they don't know what they are either. One theory is that the UFOs could be a foreign military aircraft. According to the New York Times, China and Russia have both invested heavily in supersonic technology. From what you've seen, how likely is that and does that theory trouble you? Yeah, so, first of all, the of the $600, $700 billion budget of the Pentagon, I would want some fraction of that to, to check out the sky and, and make sure that there, there aren't threats. So I, I'm, I'm happy to have learned that there are government programs investigating these, no problem there. Um, at, by the way, they could be foreign, foreign craft that have achieved some level of aerodynamic sophistication that we have not. I, I'm glad they're looking into that, totally. I have no problem with that. Now, some of it, I think, is not explained simply by hypersonic technology. Um, there's, there's behavior of these docs that I don't know what that is. And, you know, my first thought is it's, a, it's a, some kind of bug or malfunction of the electronics. Okay? That's, that would be my first thought, not we're being observed by intelligent ends from another planet. Now yeah, but that's me. Now, there seems to be growing bipartisan support for more government funding for research into UFOs. But as Republican Senator Marco Rubio has pointed out, a stigma still exists around the issue, which can prompt giggles and eye rolls on Capitol Hill. How do we convince lawmakers to think less in terms of E.T. and more like contact or interstellar? Yeah, I think the way to destigmatize it is there are these things showing up in military radar and we don't know what they are. Anyone who is curious, say, let's go try to figure it out. If you lead with the idea that we're being visited by aliens, that's, uh, some people have that as their first explanation for what they don't understand. 
But for a skeptical scientist, that would probably be the last explanation. As Carl Sagan famously said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, not monochromatic, fuzzy Navy video of something that looks like a Tic Tac. <laughs> One of the great challenges in this world is knowing enough about a subject to think you're right, but not enough about the subject to know you're wrong. Well, there you go. <laughs> I played that. So a lot of that kind of reflected what you mentioned earlier, Mike, Micah. It did. And Martin, if I can just, you know, cover a few of the points right there again, that very last one, you know, <laughs> about uh, not knowing enough to know that you're wrong. I would say that one of the great paradoxes about UFO research is when people come on radio programs like this and say, you know, I'm a UFO researcher and uh, an expert on this phenomenon. Look, if we mm -hmm. still call them unidentified, right, flying objects, if they're unidentified, how can anybody really be an expert? Now, you or I might be an expert in the cultural dialogue about these or the history of purported sightings or, you know, even an expert in speculations about them. You know, computer scientists and physicists like Jacques Vallée have laboriously tried to catalog information and look for statistical trends that can help us discern things. I would dare say that someone like Vallée, when it comes to everything from the science to the myth and the culture of UAP studies spanning several decades, he's probably one of the closest to being an expert of anybody that we have. He, Mark Rodiger, uh, and a few others too, who, you know, again, have both certain qualifications, but have also been in it for a while. But at the end of the day, there are limitations to how much expertise we UFO experts can have. Now, all of that said, Neil deGrasse Tyson is probably a little less equipped when it comes to the knowledge base that some of those UFO researchers have even though he is more well-equipped than the average bear and maybe even the average scientist when it comes to having a knowledge of the physics and the fundamentals of the workings of the universe and, and thereby has a scientific toolkit, i.e. the scientific method, and knows how to apply that when he's looking at things. But by the same token, then he falls back on that tired argument that we've heard, and again, with respect, both he and Seth Shostak say, well, maybe these are just bugs in the camera. First and foremost, let's point out that these objects, as was referred to in the ODNI report last June, are sometimes both seen in videos but also tracked on radar. Sometimes there are other sensor systems that are capable of detecting these. Satellite images appear to depict UAP as a, uh, was related by uh, former DNI John Ratcliffe uh, back a couple of years ago, and that was with a bit of controversy too because some had said specifically – uh, uh, Lewis Gideon Krauss writing from the New Yorker that intelligence officials he spoke with had wished maybe that Mr. Ratcliffe hadn't said so much about <laughs> the satellite images involving these things. Uh, but we look at all the different agencies that contributed to the ODNI report. You know, it wasn't just a couple of people up there at the Office of Naval Intelligence. We had the Navy. Yes, we did have some input, limited though it was, by the Air Force. And again, uh, Christopher Mellon has really uh, complained about that and really put out what I consider a tour de force there at the debrief.org in an article that he did for us asking why is the Air Force essentially AWOL on the UAP question. But we also had the military. I mean, we had the FAA. We had National Geospatial Intelligence. We had the NRO, the FBI, the CIA, even though they were probably redacted. That was one of the agencies that uh, I suspect was probably behind a short redaction in that classified version of the report that John Greenwald got the other day. 
The point is there were a lot of agencies supplying data. Let's not forget the NSA too, by the way, and some others that I haven't mentioned. A lot of agencies were supplying data that they have on UAP that probably came from multiple sensor systems. Guys, even though in, it's incomplete, the information that we have, okay, they haven't given us all the details on what sensor systems have collected these things, but I'm pretty sure that we can glean from all that that these aren't just bugs and cameras, okay? And some of the most sophisticated tracking capabilities at the disposal of our military are picking these things up. But again, paradoxically, Neil seems to come back around and say, you know, with all these hypersonics developments, note that the uh, reporter, they referred to them as supersonics. Honey, these things go a little faster than that. Uh, Neil got it right when he said hypersonics. Yeah, he says, I hope that there are people looking at these things and let's hope our foreign adversaries don't have these and aren't using them. Look, Russia, during this terrible uh, situation in Ukraine that's unfolded in recent days that my good buddy Tim McMillan's done an incredible job reporting on for the debrief there in recent days, but when they did roll out what they claimed were hypersonics weapons, many defense experts came out and said, we're not so sure. And again, what we've seen based on Russia's performance in their attempt at invading Ukraine was that if they've got advanced technologies, they certainly aren't on par with what Navy officers and others are claiming that they're encountering during these UAP incidents. So again, yeah. with all the data that we have in front of us, I'm not convinced by the arguments by Neil Tyson and others that these are just bugs in the camera or maybe Russia or China playing around. Some of them might be, but there are certainly other instances that seem to represent something far more anomalous. Micah, we're, uh, we're just about out of time here, just right, right about a minute left. Now, when I was gone, when I had to switch my Internet, did you talk about the debrief? <laughs> because if not, throw it, throw it out there real quickly, because your, your uh, monumental aspect of how that became formed and uh, what a great website that is. And I'm so sorry that w I forgot to ask you about that tonight. So you got like 30 seconds to plug that. <laughs> we, we've had plenty else on the table. And yes, I did mention it, but I'll mention again, you know, I mean, okay. there's the debrief.org uh, where you can follow my reporting and that of Tim McMillan and all the other fine writers who are contributors there. Uh, Tim, MJ, and I, of course, co-founded that. And then there's my podcast, which you can find at micahanks.com forward slash podcast, uh, where I speak about these subjects just about every week. So Martin, listen. I know we weren't on our optimal phone lines tonight. Let's do this again sooner rather than later, and I'll have a good internet connection, I promise. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Micah. It's been a real pleasure. Take care. My pleasure. All right. All right, everyone. So next week, we'll be back with Chad and Alta Dillard, and we are totally out of time. Thank you very much, and remember to keep your eye to the sky.